Okay, welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Adam, I can't believe that uh, Doug Ford's haircut didn't make one of the topics this week. Like, I was all prepared, <laughs> and I was shocked when you said it wasn't going to be, so... Because that got so much ink last week, I guess we don't really need to talk about it, do we? <laughs> well, it's a little, it's a little late for that. That's so last week. <laughs> it's it's funny how like Doug Ford kind of comes out every now and then does a press conference and then but you know the the big news was his haircut um, because I guess maybe because we we see him so infrequently but mm. anyway or needs to swallow another bee this summer yes oh man I'd love it uh, <laughs> swallow we need more politicians to swallow more insects I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Willingly or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. You can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Dr. Paul Kershaw, founder, lead researcher, and executive chair of Generation Squeeze. He's going to join us to talk about the two recent budgets, the Ontario budget and the federal budget. And uh, we brought him in so that Scotty doesn't have to talk about budgets. <laughs> how much he loves that. Um, that's going to be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including Joe Biden. He came, he saw, he dunked on Pierre Polivare. Uh, but what substance came from the visit? Uh, that's going to be in a bit, but first um, we're going to catch up with the Chinese election interference scandal. It has not gone away uh, since we last talked about this. Uh, former Governor General David Johnston was uh, was appointed the rapporteur who is going to decide, I guess, this is still not entirely clear whether or not we need a public inquiry. There was a vote in the House of Commons, an NDP motion to say that uh, we should have a public inquiry. It was, of course, non-binding. Um, so even though it was a successful motion, 172 to 149, uh, <laughs> there is no public inquiry forthcoming. But the biggest news from this lately uh, involves the MP for Don Valley North, can no longer say the liberal MP for Don Valley North. His name is Han Dong. Uh, he's sort of been the, I guess, sacrificial lamb <laughs> for this Chinese uh, election interference story. Uh, Global News report uh, suggested that he had a meeting with the consul general from China, uh, who's based in Toronto, um, suggesting to them that uh, they should improve the conditions for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, a.k.a. the two Michaels, who were held in detention in China for pretty specious reasons and more than likely as um, payback for... um, for Canada at the insistence of the United States uh, taking uh, Wang Weizhou of uh, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh executive into custody. This, uh, of course, unfolded, and we talked about this several times on this show. Uh, the accusation is that Dong uh, said to the council, like I said, that uh, the Michael should be getting better treatment and also that the Chinese government should not release the Michaels because... Um, it would give the Conservative Party a uh, boost in the campaign. Of course, famously, the two Michaels uh, were released from Chinese custody about a week after the last federal election in 2021. So, I mean, a lot of 
there's certainly a lot of uh, circumstantial stuff around this. Um, Dong has not denied that he met with the council general. He has denied that he was sort of the initiate of the meeting. Um, but he he has not denied that he did meet with the council when it was said. But uh, I mean, that guy was pretty broken up when he resigned for the <laughs> from the Liberal Party for oh. a man who seemed to be the um, the center of the scandal. Yeah, and I think he's actually getting dinged for meeting with the the, the council general rather than any of the other stuff because that's it's mm. that's kind of sideswiped him, I think. And you know, to be fair, there's no. This is just the uh, the anonymous whistleblower mm. who's supposedly a national security officer, two of them, I believe, that talked to the globe mm-hmm. versus anything that's it's it's still not proven, right? There's no there's supposedly evidence, but somebody saying, I this happened isn't that's not evidence, as we yeah. know. Right? Yeah. So Handong is, uh, there was a letter making the rounds. You probably saw it on official letterhead saying he's planning to sue Global National, who are the ones that uh, went public with this delegation in kind of in tandem with whoever it is that's writing in the Globe, assumed to be the same person. Mm-hmm. Global National, uh, on their own news, were like, well, we haven't really received anything official yet. <laughs> uh, I think they're going to. Right. And uh, when this kind of extends, forgotten in this as well is is Vincent K, mm-hmm. conservative MPP from Don Valley. We've talked a bit about this before, who mm-hmm. is supposedly the bag man in this, also, but also not proven. Yeah, proven all this has happened. Uh, Doug Ford said he was briefed. It was actually his chief of staff that was briefed, and uh, he. It sounded like he was shrugging it off a bit. He's probably having a real egg sandwich somewhere. Something I don't know, but anyway. Mm. Uh, so cross party, these two will need to work to clear their names. Uh, Vincent K had had um, said that he thought it was a racist attack. Uh, mm. And it, it was very spontaneous. You know, the ambush with the mic, he just said that. I'm not sure if he uh, believes it or not. But again, both of them are under this scrutiny. And it's just, it's, he said, mysterious person, it could be a she, I don't know, mysterious person says, and it's like, okay, you're out. You need to, you need to step aside. For, and they're doing that for the good of their party. If they hang around, like it's just right, not, right. so you have to get out of caucus or be independent and take a step back. But, the damage is done, right? It's done by that point. There's, I don't know what it, and it's, I don't know if some of this is because there's an election in the air. Mm. They thought, I think the prediction was that all oh, the budget, you know, it might not go well. And of course, it, well, you're going to talk about that in part two a bit, <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering if the, if the trickling out of this is, is, you know, doing exactly the counterpoint to it in that it's it's it this is a type of election interference in a way of a sort but it's coming yeah. from it's coming from inside the house yeah because you get, the reputation damage is no matter what comes out your your the damage is done now so right yeah the, backpedal from that I, it's it's really really hard no you're you're right it, it does feel like we're kind of in damaging ourselves um the thing with the Han Dong thing is that, um, I mean, there are a couple of things with the Han Dong thing. Like, he, he was, like, really, really emotional mm-hmm. when he was given that speech. And it's just, like, if this guy was, like, 
guilty. Like, you know, maybe I'm gullible, you know, <laughs> but you know, he, he really seemed genuinely um, affected uh, personally by the accusation. And he also voted in favor of the public inquiry. And you got to think to yourself, like if he's the, the, the dirt, the bag man and all this, like why would he want an investigation into himself? On the other hand, you know, the, the journal in me is like, come on global. You, did you go to press with like solid information? Cause you're, you're flushing the reputation of an, again, uh, member of parliament down the turlet. Um, I, I want to believe that you did not do that lightly, but I mean, there is kind of every indication that they kind of did it lightly because you have these two people, um, national security, um, people, uh, anonymous people who are part of the national security apparatus, which is about all we know about them, um, who are saying, uh, you know, there was this meeting and, uh, they don't really have any details. And the, the, what the 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 content of the meeting too it seems to work across purposes dong wanted the chinese government to give the two michaels a break uh to make the liberals look good but if the two michaels were released from prison before the election it would make the liberals look bad and that doesn't make a lot of sense and i mean the two michaels should be noted were also at the the joe biden speech uh mm-hmm. in the house of commons the other day and uh <laughs> blowing kisses <laughs> melanie jolie so it doesn't seem like there's a lot of uh, <laughs> or, or it doesn't seem like there's any love loss frankly it seems the love is still there the other thing is um the white global has kind of presented this information um you know, presenting Han Dong as like, ooh, he kind of just sidled in there in in Don Valley North after uh, what was the the guy who uh, Greg Tan, um, he just kind of sidled in there. Greg Tan was going to run for re-election, and then Han Dong sidled in there, and that's not what happened at all. And you have to look pretty deep in the article to sort of <laughs> to remember the details. Maybe you don't remember the details of how Craig Tan ended up leaving politics uh at the during the 2019 election but greg tan you know gave his he was married gave his girlfriend a job at his constituency office got her knocked up and then refused to pay child support so there's all this like salacious stuff that resulted in, in greg tan not running it. and han dong was a former mpp so he would not be of former mpp of the same area so it, of course it's you know uh, a lot of local residents with chinese ancestry um the the chinese consulate is in that area chinatown so you know he has a lot of these sort of organic connections um to to the area and you could call it like good constituency service that you know the the chinese consulate calls you and says hey can we have a meeting you say sure i mean that's that's not really controversial um and then the other piece of this too is the allegation that um China like surreptitiously sponsored like nine friendly China friendly conservative candidates to be sort of like sleeper cells in the party to go after more um more pro uh, I guess more anti China um members of parliament for, in the conservative party and you know we we still don't know who those people are and Aaron O'Toole back then I was like oh yeah there was like a nine there were like nine candidates that China was sponsoring it's like well who are they um. <laughs> who who were these people that China was selecting to be their um, disruptors in the Conservative Party? You know, so far, I mean, we have two names: 
Han Dong and and Vincent K. And and then we have this other character who's kind of like the delta between them. Why uh Why Cheng Yi, who's uh, the president of of Foodie Mart, which is this chain of stores, and hmm. you know that seems to be the real thing. And and I wonder if we're missing the forest for the trees. It's like, is China like influencing politicians directly, or are they using like these like sort of community people, these business people, who um might have an easier time navigating than say some random person um, who could be a Chinese spy, because obviously if, if someone has multiple businesses in your area and you're running for office, you're going to meet with them. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this is why it smacks of a whisper campaign among other things. And the, it's, it's effectively misinformation. Mm-hmm. I would think that globals lawyer lawyers and globe and mail would have had to pick this over, especially with the, the front page on, on the globe, globe mm-hmm. mail. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just, you couldn't print that without somebody from legal looking at it. One would As you see in every single movie about, <laughs> about the press, it's like, oh, we send it to legal or we're not, we're not going to run it. There's truth to that mm-hmm. because the repercussions are huge. If it's, if it's, if it's wrong, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know if you read the letter in the globe, Adam, but it was like, the tone was, I I, you know, I don't believe that foreign interference dictated how the election turned out. And what was the other bit was like, I also don't think it's, this is directly a China issue. Mm. It's like, okay, so all of these things that they are focusing on, you are saying that that isn't necessarily the issue. Mm-hmm. Or is it, is it, are they trying to say <clears throat> broader foreign interference is a problem? If that's the case, then why are you narrowing it down? to these specifics rather than going for a, somebody from, from behind the scenes, giving a blanket statement saying, Oh man, there's interference everywhere, which is, I mean, governments of a certain size all interfere. Mm-hmm. U S are champions. at mm-hmm. There's talk of Russia interfering in the, in the U S election, right? It's, they do it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not a secret, but when they start naming names, you need to have that right. It, <laughs> and yeah and there's the other blanks there's some i can't remember maybe even in global had the flow chart with the people you mentioned but then there was these blanks they just had yeah. it's like when you don't have a, an id picture right there just puts up that head mm-hmm. it's like are you waiting is this going to trickle out is it out to somebody no uh at the top or where where is this going are they holding this is where i'm thinking that they're holding on until oh there's a snap election okay here they are this is who that mm. surprise moment. It's not even October surprise. Whenever the hell the election's going to be, <laughs> if it isn't fixed date, if the government falls, which is possible, because it's still a minority. Mm. That's my suspicion. You know, let's just just knock a couple of them off, and then we'll wait, and then we'll drop the whole load and see what happens. I mean, it's. I mean, I suppose it's possible. At, at the same time, that's me going full on conspiracy, but <laughs> which doesn't happen often. But that's why this. Rather than reveal the whole thing, why you why is it trickling out? I mean, and it could also be a thing where they got just enough information to make it publishable, and, and it could be a thing where they're trying to shake more loose, and there could be more to come. But I mean, it also seems, you know, I don't necessarily blame Dong for suing Global because it seems like since no last November, Global's been kind of like building a case against him <laughs> exclusively. Um, 
so he may feel definitely persecuted but yeah i mean part of this is 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 that it's too political and you know we i think we said this before when we covered this we should be concerned about chinese political interference we should be concerned about all kinds of political interference including from people in our own country interfering in elections which has actually happened um but there's as we know well <laughs> which, as we know yes as we know exclusive to the show at one point yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. but no it, it it's 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 being wrapped up though in this like anti-china hysteria this anti-chinese communist government hysteria and um it, it makes it really i mean it's like the whole kind of covid origins thing it's you know you don't want to indulge in these conspiracy theories about stuff being released from labs because you know that's you know little old ladies um who emigrated to china when they were 15 years old and have lived in this country for six decades can sometimes end up getting beaten up because of racism mm-hmm. um around that stuff too and i i just i wish that we could stop take a breath I like I'm we'll talk about Pierre Polivare in a minute, but you know, I wish he could just stop like we need to if he would just keep his comment to we should have a public inquiry, we need to get to the bottom of this, and instead of like turning into an attack and attack and attack and attack, because this is something that affects everyone, every political party. A a PC MPP's been taken down by this, a liberal MP's been taken down by this. We don't know who might be next. And can we just keep politics out of this? It's the election. It affects everyone. You know, so it's it's this isn't a party thing. It's an everyone thing. So can we keep politics out of this and, you know, maybe get some answers before we start condemning? And that goes straight for, you know, how about guilty until or how about innocent until proven guilty? I almost got that backwards, which was really unfortunate. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, more to come, more to come, more to come. Um so a lot of this stuff took a uh, back seat at the end of last week when Joe Biden came to town, smiling Joe Biden. Uh, he got a couple of good shots off uh, the Maple <laughs> Leafs. Um, <laughs> uh, also got a couple of good shots off Pierre Paul Hebert. Um What what was your favorite Pierre Paul Hebert moment from last week during the Joe Biden well, visit? Was it was it when he uh, introduces himself as the leader of His Majesty's loyal opposition? Or was it when he said that he didn't get an invitation to the dinner and it turned out it was sent to uh, an email account that he uh, supposedly doesn't check, even though it's his official parliament email account? They didn't send it to his Gmail, so he didn't get it. (laughs) Gmail account. (laughs) So secure, just waiting for interference to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think I I knew that the visit was going to go to this place and it was the way too much coverage of the, of the, faux pas real or perceived like elizabeth mm. may's chocolate bar and oh that was cute i thought that was cute. Yeah, it was yeah that wasn't bad it's just that is where the focus went and it, it's it's so much to do with the very, very canadian thing to be happy when america is paying attention <laughs> yeah, yeah to us especially the top dog <laughs> top dog comes to town it's like drop everything even the conservatives probably a little starstruck uh yeah polyver feels like he's still in like the high school shallow shadow parliament <laughs> when he talks, you got, you got this guy with 50 years worth of experience coming at you. Like, just don't even try to be smart with this guy. Just say, Hey Joe, how's it going? 
or sheer slow clap. Like it just, these are just the, ref- that was beautiful. That was and beautiful. It's, it's, <laughs> it's too bad it went to this place, but at the same time, it shows the, <sighs> I would call it an aptitude. If anybody's yesterday's man, it's Andrew Shear. <laughs> he's a failure. Right. And yet he's, he's doing this mocking thing. Like he's back. It's all, it's so high school. <laughs> okay. It's almost public school. Anyway. Okay. okay. Best candid then from, from the visit. Was it Andrew Shear doing the slow clap or was it uh, Xavier Trudeau um, z- observing proper Canadian etiquette and not wearing shoes inside? Oh, I missed that one. Oh, you didn't even see that I picture? I missed that one. And I go with Shira. Tommy, the kid that's like seven feet tall now, or I don't know. It doesn't matter. Oh, he's tall. He's he's very tall. Yeah, no, he's for sure. Kid. He's a tall okay, kid. Okay, so now we got all that out of the way. Let's go slightly <laughs> more serious, right? Because they yeah. did talk about some serious stuff. They did talk about the uh, the most serious thing though was probably the um, the new third safe third country. I guess they, they called it an, an update, um, but it essentially says that Canada has to take fifteen thousand uh, refugees at, at the border in exchange. America will help us, um, I guess, close down the Roxham Road access, which is fitting because a lot of those people are being sent to Roxham Road by American politicians like New York City Mayor Eric Adams. So. Uh, yeah, that feels pretty good. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, also a very Canadian thing to sl- just slap a sign up. Sorry, we're closed. Like that's yeah. <laughs> no yeah. barbed wire, no anything. Just it's like when they put the bump sign on the road and it stays there for like thirty years. Bump. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a Canadian tradition. Yeah, so Roxham Road closed effectively closed. It, it was it's too bad because they was they were talking to some people who had come all that way. Mm. So I can't remember this person's journey, but it was far. And then they got there mm. and I was like, no, no, it's not happening. So I guess if you're in transit, you couldn't find out the news. Right. But did Polyev come out and say, that's a great thing that it's called. He's been harping on all this time. He'll never say, Ooh, they've done a solid here. It's just, there'll be something else. It'll be inflation is causing it or something. Right. That's mm-hmm. all I've been, all I've been hearing. Yeah. So rocks and road show. What else would a lot about, um, the upgrades to NORAD too was a big upgrades, one. Upgrades to NORAD, had um, economic stuff like the clean energy plans and coming up with it with a more integration there, mm-hmm. high tech electric vehicles and specifically natural resources. And I think that's probably the biggest economic thing to come out of this anyway. Mm-hmm. Trying to improve that relationship and Canada's wanting a piece of the pie more than just the being the what's the classic the hewers of wood mm, mm-hmm. rather than just being here take our ring of fire and take all of this stuff there mm. has to be some jobs in there somewhere they're not heavy in the details right I'm sure it's somewhere but it's not ironed out it's like well we talked it was only a 24-hour visit like yeah what the hell are they gonna talk about and I think the only solid thing to come out of it maybe was the Roxham Road uh, decision that was but it was pre-inked like that that didn't yeah. just happen on the weekend. That was that's been, so that's rest- been like a year in the works. Like the CBC yeah. had a pretty good explainer, like how all of a sudden did they have like a an agreement on Roxham Road when we were told like, oh, it's gonna take years to sort this out, and then voila, Joe Biden comes to town and we have an agreement. And it turns out they've been working on it the last year. Mm-hmm. And when um Joe Biden announced he was coming to Canada uh last week, they they put the rush on it to 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 get it finished in time. So um I mean it, it's one of those stories where 
it, it seems to come out of nowhere, but it, it's actually something that was um, in, in progress for a year before you get the announcement. So, I mean, it's interesting that they were able to, um, and, and I, I saw a commentary about this. I can't remember where, but essentially that, you know, if that was the thing, all eyes were going to be on because like France, Francois Legault has been making it a, a, you know, a constant issue. Pierre Polliver has been making it a constant issue. And then, you know, it is an issue and you have, you know, 40,000 people crossing in any given year. But that was kind of like the one thing people had all eyes on. It's like, is there going to be progress on this one thing? And there, and if there is progress, you could say, well, the trip's successful. Well, there was progress, so the trip's successful. So, you know, whatever other like faux pas or piece by piece by chocolate or cookie shops that he didn't show up <laughs> at, it, you know, it, it's... Obama it, cookie. <laughs> I mean, it, it all, you know, it's all kind of this, you know, sauce for the goose because we did get the one thing at least. And, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I guess... I guess now we'll have like better capability of finding the balloons when they fly over. I guess that's a that's a plus. Something. Well, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, the the supply chain issues and resilience and all that plays into that the dynamic worrying about balloons, NORAD, mm. and security because well, let's just say China, Russia, <laughs> mm-hmm. Russia is a neighbor, even though we don't really think of it that way. Mm-hmm and well there's on the other side of the arctic circle from our northern northern landmass so which has been a concern for a hundred years probably right but sure these days uh but also in 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 securing resources from us in that interchange Mm. will it won't sideline china but this i think it it's at the point where uh, it, they need to take full advantage of the, uh, let's just say, locally sourced materials because uh, the way the tone has been in well the past couple of years, but 2023 in particular, at any time, mm-hmm. things could come crashing down, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's... Uh, it, was I a guess, nice, it was a nice visit. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was pretty good. I give it a seven. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> seven, seven a little bit half. of fodder for... Uh, for Twitter and meme land as well. So, and it was, it was, re- it was really super nice of Joe Biden to cut a campaign ad for the liberals too, while he was speaking in the house. Oh, of the stand up bit. Yeah. 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 Oh, that didn't was, take that was long really to, to, yeah, that got out there very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was great. Um, and maybe if to give some Maple Leafs a little bit of motivation going into the playoffs, you know, maybe we'll show that. Biden guy. <laughs> show that show that old fart from Delaware who's boss. I don't know. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with uh, Paul Kershaw of Generation Squeeze. We'll talk about budgets. You are listening to Open Source Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
And that was Jeff Berner from his 2017 album, Canadiana Grotesquia. And the song was called Rule of the Road, with apologies to Country Dick Montana. Another song about bands on the road and things getting damaged. There's a few out there. But also, follow the rules of the road, damn it. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't... Re- I, I, I thought this was a reference to Roxham Road, uh, but I, no. I didn't realize that there were some long-simmering issues uh, behind our musical selection this week. Between me and Cars? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, speaking of long-simmering issues, uh, there's a lot going on in budget land. We had the Ontario budget on Thursday. We had the federal budget on Tuesday. Uh, for, I guess, relative closeness to home, we're going to focus in this conversation on the Ontario budget and uh, to to bring in some real expertise um, not just me and Scotty. We asked, uh, we invited Dr. Paul Kershaw to come on the show. He's the founder, lead researcher, and executive chair of Generations uh, Generation Squeeze, which is a, a kind of um, think tank that focuses on equity issues, especially concerning sort of younger people, millennial people, um, things around housing, social justice, uh, social spending, all of that great stuff, climate mitigation. And uh, so this is how they sort of analyze uh, budgets. And of course, a lot of these issues, you know, while being handled at the federal level are also primarily handled at the provincial level. And so there's a lot of um, a lot of people hoping that uh, the Ontario budget was going to be corrective in some way to some of the, the tremendous challenges around housing and climate change and traffic and, and a lot of different issues. And so we thought it'd be interesting to have Dr. Kershaw come in and uh, give us the generation squeeze perspective. And we're going to get that perspective starting right now. Okay. Paul Kershaw, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Um, Just for me, for the benefit of the listeners, can you give a brief description of uh, what generation squeeze is and, and what uh, your, your group does? Yes, Generation Squeeze is a think and change tank. So in one hand, we you know provide a lot of information about public policy change that would be really beneficial. On the other hand, we'd want, we don't want to just give information. We want to make the world a better place. We want to change government policy. So a think and change tank. And in particular, we champion generational fairness as a way to promote well-being for all generations. We are really keen on protecting what Canadians tend to hold sacred, like a healthy childhood, a healthy home, a healthy planet, so that we can all leave a proud legacy. And that really requires us to focus on, are we planning for all ages? Mm-hmm. So having said that, um, how do you approach these budget deliberations? Um you know, a lot of people look for things like what groups are being helped. Um, you know, w- when do we get to a balanced budget if we're not at a balanced budget? What are the things you look for when it's budget time? We look at the same sorts of things. We look at who's benefiting and, you know, when are we coming to balance budgets and so on, because that really matters from the standpoint of generational fairness. So if we're bringing in this lens at age and that will at a provincial level and often require us to focus on on. Uh, healthcare. And so I think healthcare is actually a primary story in the Ontario budget this year, as it is in so many years. Um, if people are looking at the details of the budget, by 2025, uh, Ontario is going to be spending $88 billion a year on medical care. Is that a lot? Is that a little? Well, that's more than all the money that Ontario will spend on childcare, education, every social service, and housing combined. Mm-hmm. 
and indeed, medical care is going to grow from 75 billion to 88 billion uh, between last year and 2025. So that's a $13 billion increase. And that $13 billion increase is as much as the entire budget for post-secondary. Right. So if you want to understand what Ontario governments really care about, it is most definitely medical care and medical care wins at the cabinet table or bullies at the cabinet table uh, compared to all the other issues going on. And so uh, we really pay a lot of attention to that because that's a good news story and it's a worrisome story for a range of reasons. If you want to explore that, I'm happy to go into it. If that you don't care about that, let's move on. <laughs> no, I do want to care about that because I, I did note that in, on Generation Squeeze's website, there's a cute little infograph with uh, healthcare as the elephant and then, you know, little mammals like mice and things as all these other areas like post-secondary education, childcare, edu- uh, you know, K to 12 education. Um, I, I guess for, for people who may think, well, if we're spending a lot on healthcare, that's good. I think that's probably the, the prevailing thought on people. If we're, you know, we're putting that much money into healthcare is not a good thing. Why, why are you suggesting that maybe that's a bit out of whack? Well, it's certainly the case that Ontarians right now are struggling with long wait times and not enough access to doctors. So you can understand why there is a desire for our provincial government to inject some new funds into the medical medical system. But what Ontario's budget, and I guess to some degree what you're suggesting a lot in the general public are overlooking, is that medical care doesn't really drive what makes us healthy. At most, it counts for a quarter of what makes us healthy. And medical care was never supposed to go it alone. It's meant to be part of a wider system of supports that bring people the things they need for good health, like decent earnings, good homes, childcare, uh, and a sustainable planet. And I I like to think of it in terms of fire prevention. Like we are all happy when the fire department shows up at our home because it's caught on flame and they provide the heroic services, saving us, maybe helping us out of our window before the home burns down. But despite our appreciation of that heroism, we all are really clear that, you know, preventing fires is going to be way less deadly, way less damaging and way less costly for everybody. Right. And so it is with the healthcare system. If we wait to invest until people are ill, that's like showing up with hoses once the, you know, the fire is already ablaze. And we want a generation squeeze to like prevent fires before the sparks get out of hand. And that means that our clinics and that means that our hospitals have to be the last stops in our health system. The first stops for good health are found in our neighborhoods, our jobs, our childcare, our schools. And that was something I think the pandemic made really, really clear. And so at Gen Squeeze, we want to be in the business of slowing the flow of sickness into our hospitals and our clinics. And I think that the Ontario budget <clears throat> misses that opportunity. Mm-hmm. I guess then how do you write that? Because I think a lot of governments are are confronting us on a whole host of issues, right? You know, I, I think about things like policing, which is another one of these examples of how, you know, things get funded on the back end of the cycle where we could be throwing investments at the front end and thus, you know, maybe not have to have as much money in policing as we, if we have more money yes, in mental health. And, similar and, themes. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it seems like we can't, for, for whatever, I mean, there are a myriad of issues. And one of them too is, you know, we have to sort of make that transition while also dealing with the fact we've let something get to the crisis point. Fair, fair enough. So it was the case, say, in 1976, that was a decade after we'd started our medical care experiment in Canada. And it's a good experiment. But back in the day, um, you would have had the Ontario's government consistently spending more on social and education services than it did on medicine. 
Mm-hmm. If you flash forward to today, I just showcased for you, now consistently spends less on social and education issues by comparison with medicine. So we have failed to invest in promoting well-being early on in people's lives. And so it's not surprising that people are more likely to fall, fall sick and have a range of needs that come to be attended to in our hospitals. So you're right. We're going to now need to invest in our firefighters in the hospital, aka doctors, nurses, other medical care professionals. We need to <clears throat> recognize that they're at risk of burning out right now because they have too long a queue of people needing their care. But let's also be clear that to order, in order to address the number of people who need their care, you don't just give us more firefighters, you'd right. ultimately like to get fewer people in that queue. And that means we need to start ramping up our investments on the social and educational side of the equation of what we call the social determinants of health, or I might add like the social determinants of crime. And right. if we start to invest in the well-being early on and optimize those conditions, then we can reduce the risks that nurses and doctors and other medical professionals will burn out because they want to be able to prescribe housing. They want to be able to prescribe poverty reduction and child care and reconciliation. And in many cases, they simply are not in position to do that. We need our governments to do that at a higher level. I guess what's the delta? Like, what's the missing the missing factor then um, to... I mean, th- what we're talking about, I've, I've been talking about it with people like you for years and, you know, doctors talk about it, social workers talk about it. It just seems like the last pole to vault is the government. And I guess, you know, from, from your your vantage point and, and your advocacy work, I guess, how do we convince our governments to to make those sorts of investments? Is well, there an answer? Think, yeah, no, I typically <laughs> think we get the policy that we are asking for in many respects. So I think I think Ontarians, I think Canadians generally, we need to create political cover for our politicians to bravely respond to the data that health doesn't start with medical care. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we are going to need to say, hey, politicians, why don't we why don't we're going to vote for you the more that you govern in accordance to the age old wisdom? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right. But this is hard in Canada because we struggle to define who we are as a nation. We'll often say we're not our American neighbors to the south. And how do I know that? Because we have publicly funded medical care. And so that (laughs) creates this cultural instinct in Canada that we're good and just and better than our neighbors to the south when we do more money for that, even though the evidence doesn't suggest that's where more money ought to go who want to invest in people's well-being. Right, right, right. Um, We kind of take, I guess we kind of take advantage of how where we are and how we compare to americans more often than looking at how we can do better here um i want to talk about housing a bit because obviously that's a big concern in a lot of places in ontario um one of the things you called for in uh generation squeezes uh, i guess it was a list of recommendations for the budget was um freeze i guess freezing housing prices correct me if i'm wrong but you know (laughs) Uh, freezing housing prices where they are to let people catch up and this is another one of those things that i think is triggering for people like government messing around in in free market (laughs) uh free market economics and uh i I guess is within the just to, to generally start this off is it within government's power to sort of muck in the real estate market and like freeze prices and on the the open market yeah, so freeze prices isn't a verb that I would have used to describe okay. what we're, we're suggesting. I think we ask all politicians, um, provincial, federal, and at the municipal level, what's your goal for housing? What do you want from the housing system right now? What do you want to have happen to home prices? Is it your aspiration that home prices continue to rise? Okay, if it is, that means you really think housing is primarily uh, an investment vehicle. 
Mm-hmm. Um, is it your aspiration that home prices, at the very least, they stall uh, and let earnings have a chance to catch up over many, many years? That would be more in line with the idea that you're prioritizing housing being for homes first and investment second. Right. And so what we're asking for is for clarity. Because at this stage, we have, on one hand, government saying we want to invest in affordability and they'll use some tax dollars, although a surprisingly small number in the Ontario 2023 budget. Um, <laughs> I can speak to that in a bit. Um, but then we have tax policies and so on that shelter wealth accumulation in housing. Like we don't shelter any other wealth accumulation anywhere in the tax system at all. So it's like, hey, treat your principal residence as the primary way to get a really good after-tax wealth windfall. I know of what I speak. I live in Metro Vancouver. I've been a homeowner there for 18 years. And, you know, in the last four years alone, my home has gained a million dollars for me while I slept and it is completely tax free. Yeah. And so I guess I'm saying, okay, your signal is that more people should treat that housing as a great investment because you're telling us that's where to get the after-tax return. I think that that is absolutely crazy if we care about housing being for homes and we want to prioritize hard work paying off. Right. You know, when my mom started out in Canada's housing system, it took five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average priced home. It was the case in Toronto, Vancouver, Ontario, BC, coast to coast on a five to six years. Now across Canada, it takes 17 years, 22 in Ontario and BC, 27 in the GTA and Metro Vancouver. That is an incredible deterioration in the way that hard work pays off. And I want governments to be clear What's driving that way in which hard work doesn't pay off any longer is home prices are rising and rising and leaving earnings behind. So do you think that's good or not? Right. And if you don't think it's good, then let's use every policy tool at our disposal to actually just say, we don't want home prices to rise any longer. We're going to grow our economy. We're going to promote thriving economically somewhere outside of real estate and especially the part of real estate, which is driving up the value of existing homes. That doesn't strike me as a great way to produce a productive economy where earnings rise. What it creates, as we've seen in Canada now for years, especially Ontario and BC, is it creates unaffordability for those who have come to the housing market more recently, young people, newcomers of any age, and a tremendous amount of wealth windfalls for people like me and those especially older than me who've been a homeowner for decades. How much of it is supply? Because we hear that a lot. Sure, supply absolutely matters, but don't let anyone tell you that supply is the entire panacea. I mean, let's look at what's actually cooled down home prices in 2022 and into 2023. It's the first year under Ford's government that you've actually not seen that big a rise. Well, it still did creep up in 2022 over on average prices over the year. And the answer to why it stalled, you know, is we had a number of interest rate increases. Mm. So monetary policy really matters. And on this front, actually, one of the key things that we were asking the Ontario government to do is it's not going to cost it anything. Call on Statistics Canada to get better at measuring housing inflation. Because Mm. we had eight interest rate hikes. I think it was eight in the past 12 months because food inflation went up. Our costs of gasoline and other fuels went up. And StatsCan has been good at measuring that. But we've had inflation in housing prices well above 2% for literally years and years and years. And StatsCan never said, hey, this is causing an overall inflation problem. Want to know why? Because they're actually quite poor at measuring housing inflation. Mm. It may surprise your listeners that they don't actually track what's happening to average home prices. 
Mm-hmm. They don't track for the purpose of measuring inflation. How much does one need to pay for a down payment? They don't track the total amount of money one needs to borrow from a bank to cover the mortgage after their down payment. What they track from the standpoint of home ownership is how much interest are you paying on the mortgage that you've borrowed? Mm. That's a very small slice. That really matters if you're me, because I'm already yeah. a homeowner and I'm like, okay, I've already got in the housing market and I've already got my mortgage. And what's happening with my interest payments? But that doesn't at all reflect the reality of a younger person or a newcomer who's like, my big concerns are like, how much do I need to save for this crazy down payment? And then what whopping amount of additional money do I need to borrow in total from the bank? If StatsCan isn't actually tracking those things for measuring housing inflation, it is fundamentally failing younger Canadians and it is contributing to the intergenerational injustice that Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland identified a year ago. Mm. I was hoping in the 2023 federal budget that they were going to uh, encourage StatsCan to review its measure of housing inflation. We've been pushing for that for some time at Gen Squeeze, along with partners in the Business Council of British Columbia and the Conference Board of Canada. And I was disappointed. That's a no-cost policy adaptation, and they didn't uh, recommend that review. There's a lot of confusing stuff. I mean, this is kind of symptomatic. There's a lot of confusing stuff about the way we approach housing. You know, Doug Ford and his government is like, we're we're making all these changes so we can get more housing built. And so we get more supply, prices come down. But on the other hand, there are people who will never be able to take part in the housing market. There's no uh, allowances. Even something simple, and this was pointed out at the own, my own city council here in Guelph, you know, something that the, the province the province of Ontario could do is, you know, make funds available to remediate brownfields. You know, there are pieces of land here in Guelph, I'm sure all over Ontario, that are just contaminated. You can't responsibly build on it. Um, but if it was cleaned up, there you have, you know, fresh, serviceable land that is available for new housing stock. Yeah, and I actually, you know, I know less about that. So I'm speaking a little more just now in the conversation with you. But that strikes me as a more prudent way to move forward than saying removing land from the green belts, which are already providing these vital ecological services that keep our water clean and our air clean and some food provided and draw down carbon in the face of uh, rising climate change. That's such a precious commodity that we can't sort of neglect our our we can't neglect our climate crisis while we're trying to solve our wallet problems with regards to housing. Right. And so, yeah, the, I think the focus on you know the brownfield is that what you described it is um, is it brown brownfield like, yeah brownfield yeah, yeah, yeah I think the focus on the brownfield makes good sense on that front. Look, this is what we need to do at bot at you know there are three paths to, that we need to take simultaneously to housing affordability: scale up not for profit housing. Right. Because the market is really struggling to d- deliver housing supply at a price point that's in reach for what locals are earning. So if you're a newcomer coming in, a young person, it's so hard. We have to, though, fix the regular market. Even if you were to quadruple the amount of not-for-profit housing, you'd have the majority of Ontarians relying on the regular market. So we can't lose sight of, like, let's dial down harmful kinds of demand where we can. Let's dial up the right kinds of supply, enough bedrooms to raise a family. These got to be energy-efficient homes. And let's um, also, while we're doing so, protect renters uh, and ensure that we don't have too many reno and dem evictions. And there is, to some degree, not just unlimited increases to rents each year as the value of property and homes rises and people say, oh, I'll just charge more to my renter now. Right. Right. So that's the first two pathways. But I don't think we're going to get to either of those two pathways effectively if we don't take the third pathway as well. And we call that a gen squeeze, breaking our cultural addiction to high and rising home prices. Right. Uh, this is why we are so you know focused on what's our goal for housing? 
Do you want home prices to rise or not? If you don't, then there are ways that we can continue to try and dampen down home prices. Supply will be part of that. Uh, addressing a demand will be part of it. Influencing our monetary policy will be part of it. But just having the clarity that that's our goal. Right now, I think we're like mixed signals. And I think Ontarians can be sometimes giving mixed signals. But when you do polling... It is the case that about 70% of Ontario and 70% of Canadians, including also in BC, say, hey, yes, we want home prices to stall uh, so that earnings have a chance to catch up. Right. And I think that that, you know, I didn't say fall. Fall would be much more controversial. Mm. Um, although many a younger person might delight in the opportunity to have home prices go down by hundreds of thousands, which might then open up the door for home ownership again. That's going to be a more complicated conversation to have. But the goal that they just don't need to go up anymore, that somebody like me doesn't need to count on my home going up even more to, to plan for my retirement. Surely we can expect that people like me will be clever enough to plan for retirement in ways that don't increase unaffordability for others. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, Reviewing Ontario's budget, what would you say that, I mean, I, I've heard this said before that uh, budgets are value statements. So from from your analysis, what does the Ontario government value right now? Well, I think underlying everything I've shared with you so far is very, in, very stark, mm. worrisome intergenerational tension. Mm. We've just been touching on one intergenerational tension that the government of Ontario is more oriented towards preserving and sheltering the wealth that an older demographic has accumulated from housing than it is in asking that group to lean in, maybe contribute some of that wealth they've gained while they've been sleeping as home prices have been rising and contribute that to, you know, build the deeply affordable housing or to make sure there are enough taxes to pay for the medical care that an aging population wants so that we could also more urgently, you know, scale up $10 a day childcare or uh, invest more in post-secondary so there isn't so much student debt. So that's one intergenerational tension in the housing system. Yeah. There's an intergenerational tension with regards to climate change. And the mm. WHO identifies climate change as the greatest risk to human health in the 21st century. And in an 186-page budget, this Ontario government mentions the phrase climate change once. Right. Sure, they talk about conservation and they'll talk about clean energy. But you really have to go out of your way to avoid using the phrase climate change more than once in a 200-page document about the future of the figging province when climate change is one of the very <laughs> greatest risks facing it. Right. <laughs> and then lastly, you know, the, the medical care theme that I talked about at the beginning of our interview is also uh, obfuscating another intergenerational tension. Medical care is a quintessentially age-oriented program. When you are, um, you know, a young person, age one to twenty-five, you're using about two thousand dollars of medical care a year. Mm -hmm. By the time you're in your mid-thirties, it's gone up to about three thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Then, when people reach their, you know, sixty-five. It's double. It's over. It's like seventy five hundred dollars a person. When you're in your eighties, it's twenty five grand, and in your nineties, over thirty. Mm -hmm. So when our provincial governments are increasing medical care spending more than anything else, this is absolutely then increasing spending on an older demographic, right? Faster than anything else. So as we break down the numbers in the twenty twenty three Ontario budget, I can show you that um, for every resident over sixty five, Ontario's Ford government uh, added twenty five hundred dollars of new spending uh, per year. For um, every citizen under the age of forty five, they did twelve hundred. So right. more than twice as much for an older demographic. Now let's be clear: 
That's my mom. Well, my mom lives in BC, but that's many people's moms. <laughs> right. That's many people's moms, their grandparents, and so on. And we love those people. And so we want them to have a healthy, financially secure retirement. But this is also a demographic who loves people who follow in their footsteps, their offspring and others. Right. And they want to leave a proud legacy. They want to ensure that there's a healthy childhood, a healthy home, a healthy planet. And right now, our provincial budget in Ontario and elsewhere, this isn't really that partisan a statement. This is more of a cultural political problem across provinces. Our provincial budgets and our federal budget are very oriented towards directing the vast majority of new fund spending these days to an aging population. Mm. And we mm. are rarely, rarely talking about it. So coming back to this big intergenerational tension, we've taken so much wealth out of the housing system, we leave little affordability left over. We've taken so much of the atmosphere's scarce capacity to absorb carbon, we leave extreme weather as our legacy. We use so much of the tax dollars to invest later in our life course that we're running deficits and have little left over to invest in a younger demographic. Each of those issues, deficits, uh, underinvestment in younger people, housing unaffordability, climate change, they are all symptoms of an underlying disease. And the underlying disease is a dysfunctional generational system. You know, listening to you talk there, it makes me think uh, when it comes to budgets, there's more than one definition of a balanced budget. Mm, oh, so that's such a lovely phrase. <laughs> I might take that. I'm sorry. That was really good messaging. <laughs> Yes, I, I get one right occasionally. That's um, good. <laughs> Adam, come to our comms team. <laughs> what does it pay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I love what I do. Uh, but Paul Kershaw, thank you so much for your time today and your insights. Uh, I know I personally I enjoy uh, the the briefs from uh, Generation Squeeze. So keep doing what you're doing. It's appreciated. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I welcome more people to come to Gen Squeeze. We're not just a think tank, think and change tank, like I said at the outset, in our ability to change policy, win incremental policy victories, including something like $10 a day childcare. We are a key factor in that. I think people think, you know, how that's saving, you know, literally thousands and thousands of dollars for families with kids now. You do that by having a powerful network and the power of our network grows with its size. So check us out, join, get our newsletter. And thanks so much for today's conversation. Thanks, Paul. Okay. And once again, that was Dr. Paul Kershaw of Generation Squeeze. And hopefully you have not felt too squeezed by our show this week uh, as we're running out of time here on Open Sources. Squeeze relief coming. Squeeze relief is on the way. We have budgeted for all the time we have. <laughs> and we hope you enjoyed our show. And you can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to our show again, you can download it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're listening to us on the FM at our current, at our usual time, I mean, <laughs> Stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. I missed my nap today. so. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not wrong. It is our current time. We're, it, it, you know, Still we affected are... by the time change all these days later. I think you mean several weeks later, but moving well, on. Uh, when I, the UK one was last weekend, right? All right. All right.
Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Thursday at 5 p.m., hopefully well-rested, for more open sources. (laughs) (laughs) And we will see you then.